book of Colossians uh, chapter 2 on Sunday morning. We are studying the book of Colossians together in a series entitled uh, Give Me Jesus. And we come now to uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, while we're turning there, remember on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We'll continue our study in the book of Luke tonight as a part of that uh, journey. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-opposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you are our God. We are so grateful that we have you to know and to worship. And we thank you for our time in worshiping you this morning. And now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Speak into the foundation of our life with you. Speak into the immediate of our life and relationship with you. And uh, speak, Lord, and, and uh, your word that does not return void. Every portion of it is intended to accomplish something uh, wonderful within us. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that will do just that in each of our lives. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've seen in recent weeks, the Apostle Paul is... Uh, in his letter to the church at Colossae, he is corre correcting false doctrine that has now become entrenched within the church. And uh, doctrine that was at the time that he wrote this letter in a germ form, and ultimately in the second century it would become uh, uh, formalized and become known as the heresy of Gnosticism. The idea that somehow Christianity can be improved in some way, either by human philosophy or by legalism or by pseudo-unbiblical spirituality or by asceticism uh, or by just simply abandoning uh, altogether uh, resisting man's carnality or sin. And this morning we come to Paul's instruction concerning the fourth of those things and that is asceticism. I had thought about maybe uh, uh, tying this in with legalism, but the more that I uh, looked at it and thought about it, I thought, no, we'll give it its own uh, category as Paul lays things out. Now, of course, as we talk about asceticism, it raises the question uh, instantly, and that is, what is asceticism? Well, because the, the Gnostics believed, and wrongly, by the way, that all physical matter was evil, whether uh, speaking of the physical universe or whether speaking of the human body, they taught that nearness to God, uh, achieving God's favor, uh, spiritual growth and maturity in a relationship with God could only be achieved by very extreme self-denial 
and uh, the punishing of the body. Uh, asceticism exceeds legalism. Uh, asceticism exceeds uh, personal discipline. Personal discipline and godly discipline, all of that is commended throughout the Scriptures. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, in uh, verse 5 of this very chapter of this letter, he has already commended the church at uh, Colossae uh, for their good order or for their uh, discipline. Uh, asceticism exceeds self-denial. Of course, for each of us as Christians, we are called to a life of self-denial. Jesus uh, taught uh, us as his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. But when Jesus speaks about that, he's not talking about uh, us denying ourselves something specifically, something in particular. What he's calling on us to do is to deny the whole self-dominated life, the whole self-directed uh, life. Asceticism is uh, involved in actively uh, punishing the body in some way in, and in ways that have no biblical foundation at all. Again, in an attempt to achieve uh, God's favor, God's blessing, to achieve a nearness to God in order to achieve spiritual growth and spiritual uh, maturity. And uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, people were prone to wear these hair skirts underneath their shirts just uh, to itch and aggravate them all day and, and all night as a form of asceticism, deliberately sleeping on hard beds. They would uh, flagellate themselves or whip themselves. Uh, they would refrain from speaking for days and in some cases even for years uh, in their life. They would go without food. They would go out without sleep uh, in, in, under the banner of asceticism with these kind of goals that they thought that asceticism would deliver to them spiritually. Uh, Martin Luther famously, as a monk, uh, he would lie naked in his cell uh, all night long in the bitter cold of uh, European winters, and then he would beat his body, he would torture himself trying to find spiritual peace within uh, his heart. These kind of acts of asceticism. Now, uh, the ascetic believes that you must literally uh, suffer in a relationship with God, uh, or you are not doing it right. But the problem, one of the many problems with asceticism is that, number one, we do not see uh, these kind of things practiced by Jesus. And Jesus is the definition of holiness, and He is the definition of the Christian life. We don't see anything like this practiced by the apostles or by the early church or commended anywhere uh, within the Bible at all. Jesus taught that a life of obedience to His commandments uh, would result in a life of joy and a life of peace. He said, these things I've spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be filled. He's interested in us having a joy-filled relationship with Him. John chapter 10, verse 10 Jesus said, I am come that they may have life 
and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, in speaking about asceticism, some of you might think to yourself, well, Pastor, uh, you ought to have skipped this because asceticism is not really an issue uh, within our culture uh, by and large, not within secular culture um, and not within uh, uh, the, the spiritual culture or Christian culture at all. And of course, I'd agree with that um, entirely. It's not much of an influence, not much of a temptation for us in this culture. But it is good to uh, remember that the Bible wasn't simply written uh, to Christians in the United States of America or wherever a person might live. It's written to an entire world. And these uh, handful of verses that we are studying here this morning, uh, there are entire sections of the world uh, that if this passage were taught, I mean, it would uh, absolutely rock their uh, religious world. And uh, in the same way that teaching on uh, materialism, teaching on uh, selfism uh, rocks the world, the Western world, including of the United States of America. This aspect of uh, Gnosticism had already uh, made an inroad in the church at Colossae, and the fact that it has is revealed in Paul's question there in verse 20, why do you subject yourselves, talking to Christians, why do you subject yourselves to these regulations, uh, these uh, extra-biblical requirements that you're putting upon yourself. And he identifies the regulations there in verse 21. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. In other words, uh, this refraining from food or refraining from uh, the drinking of certain beverages or uh, even coming into any physical contact with them or uh, touching them. Now, at the heart of these kind of regulations, both uh, 2,000 years ago and today, is the idea, again, that spirituality can be achieved by means of externals, that somehow we can change, if we change enough about ourselves outwardly, then it will change what we are uh, inwardly, which is the exact polar opposite of what Christianity is. Christianity is being born again by the Holy Spirit. Uh, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and then changing us even as we have sung from the inside outward. And Paul is speaking to them, imagine abandoning that great reality of a spiritual birth, the great reality of the Holy Spirit's work in changing us from the inside out to turning to this kind of uh, feeble nonsense and thinking that somehow these things will produce a greater result in our lives than the effect of a spiritual birth being born again has already accomplished within our lives as Christians. And when Paul asks the question there in verse 20, why do you subject yourself to regulations? I mean, he's, he is shocked at the exchange that they are willing to make. And uh, it's actually, uh, the tone of it is kind of uh, a sanctified scorn 
that he is directed, uh, directing toward them on, on his uh, part that they would uh, think of changing what Christianity is in terms of a spiritual birth, a change from the inside out to these other things in order to try and shock them out of uh, what it is that some of them are beginning to buy into. And in this vein, Paul informed this, and he informs us there in verse 20, you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, what Paul is saying here is that because we have died with Christ, uh, that is just as his death defeated any and all attempts by the powers of this world to defeat him or to hold him down, uh, so too, because we are in Christ as Christians, those same principalities and powers in the world have no authority over us. And what is the most primary principle that exists in the world concerning God? Uh, and that most primary principle is self-righteousness. The idea that our salvation, our acceptance before God can somehow be achieved as a result of our own religious works or our own uh, human effort. And this uh, the whole works-oriented mentality uh, fills the entire world around us and it endeavors to intrude upon uh, not only our salvation, but to intrude upon our sanctification, our growth into Christ-likeness. In other words, if the devil was unsuccessful in keeping us uh, from becoming saved as Christians, uh, and he has been unsuccessful in doing that, if we are a Christian, then he will endeavor to convince us that now our sanctification, our becoming like Christ, and our spiritual growth, that now depends upon our own human effort and the keeping of religious uh, uh, works and rituals like uh, do not touch, do not taste, do not uh, handle. And the idea is that he knows that if he can convince us that our acceptance before God is based upon these legalisms, uh, these asceticisms, as opposed to uh, the grace of God, then these kind of things will become the entire focus of our Christian life, whether we are doing them, whether we are not doing them, and it will absolutely hamstring our intimacy with God, and it will absolutely distract us from what it is that God has called us uh, to do, the purpose that he has for our lives. These things have a way of uh, ending up consuming uh, all of the oxygen in, in a person's Christian life and becoming the sole focus of a person's uh, Christian uh, life and rendering our lives unfruitful in terms of taking the gospel to others or being involved in, in, in uh, Christian service. But our sanctification, uh, not only our salvation, but our sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit in making us like Christ once we become uh, Christians, it, our sanctification 
is every bit as grace-based as our salvation. We obey God's commandments, not in order to earn anything from Him, uh, but rather it is always done uh, to be done as a grateful response to the love that God has already shown to us and uh, making us Christians and uh, shown to us in our salvation. Now, Paul here in verse 23, he does acknowledge the appeal of asceticism. And of course, asceticism has to have some kind of an appeal uh, to our flesh or uh, nobody would be attracted to it. Nobody would bother with it. And he tells us that this neglect of the body, that it has the appearance of wisdom in self-imposed uh, religion. In, in other words, it looks spiritual. When you look at somebody who's flagellating themselves or somebody who is going uh, the, uh, to doing these kind of punishing things that, uh, that they might do to their bodies all out of an apparent uh, you know, love for God and the seeking for deeper spirituality. Uh, it certainly looks spiritual when you see people going through all of these kind of uh, personal sacrifices uh, in an attempt to draw closer to God. And uh, it can certainly impress people. We look and say, that's an extraordinary Christian, or they're way more spiritual than I am. But as we'll see, uh, it's all appearance, Paul will say, and, and absolutely of, of no value. Paul then moves on in verses 22 and 23 uh, to the problem with asceticism, his, his uh, criticism uh, of it. And number one, he says in verse 20, it has to do with the basic principles of the world. That is, as we've already seen, it is uh, man-centered and it is work-centered as opposed to being God-centered and being uh, grace-centered. It is a very self-righteous, uh, uh, has a self-righteous foundation rather than a grace foundation in a relationship with God. The second thing that he observes in verse 22 is that it's according to the commandments and the doctrines uh, of men. In other words, asceticism is a means of pleasing God or is a means of uh, uh, reaching God, uh, complete with all of its rules, all of its prohibitions, is, Paul says, a complete invention of man. Again, you don't find this kind of thing in the Bible. And it is always birthed out of a complete ignorance of God and of the God uh, of the Bible. Third, he tells us in verse 22, it can only affect things which perish uh, with the using. And that is, it focuses on things in the world uh, that are perishable. They are destined to pass away uh, when, they, when they are used. And uh, nowhere is that more true than in the examples that Paul gives in verse 21 of eating and uh, drinking. And so uh, think about it. What happens to food or to drink uh, after you have uh, partaken of it? Uh, when you eat or drink something, and it moves down that esophagus now, it immediately becomes uh, something entirely different than it was on the plate 
or something entirely different than it was uh, in the glass. It immediately begins to perish. Uh, and uh, it ceases to be what we would identify as food or drink uh, any longer, uh, and it becomes something else altogether until ultimately it's eliminated from the body uh, as something that will perish. Uh, Jesus uh, taught this very thing to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were challenging him over why his disciples did not engage in uh, the tradition. It was not a commandment, the tradition of Jewish uh, ceremonial hand-washing uh, before uh, they would eat. And in Matthew chapter uh, 15, verse 10, uh, Jesus, we're told, uh, after this challenge, he called the multitude to him. He made it a teachable moment, and he said to them, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Uh, later, Peter asked him uh, to explain this parable that Jesus had spoken of on this issue. And Jesus said to Peter, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach? and is eliminated. But those things which proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds uh, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. Uh, but to eat with unwashed hands uh, does not defile a man. Again, what enters our mouth in the form of food or drink. It has absolutely no lasting effect uh, on uh, in physical uh, change in our lives. Uh, does, it doesn't even have a lasting physical effect on our lives, let alone a lasting spiritual uh, effect upon our lives. It cannot change a person's uh, heart, and real change must occur from the inside out uh, and uh, begin with the cleansing of the heart. So Paul wonders why they or why anyone would make uh, these things, eating and drinking, uh, the focus of their spiritual life rather than all of the uh, weightier and greater spiritual realities that are ours uh, as uh, Christians, things that uh, we can engage in that are legitimate and, of course, an infinitely better uh, 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 spending of time. Why would anybody, uh, Paul is saying, take their eyes off of Jesus as the supreme focus of our lives and, and put it on these things? It's a complete uh, loss of a sense of proportion of what is really meaningful and what is not, what is really weighty and spiritual and, and what is not. And it's an evidence, Paul is, is declaring, of an utter absence of spiritual wisdom and spiritual discernment, despite what it appears to be outwardly. Fourth, Paul tells us in verse 23 that it's founded in a false humility. In other words, it looks humble, uh, the endurance of all of that self-inflicted suffering 
out of a desire to be uh, spiritual. Uh, it looks very, very humble, but Paul says that is a deception. There is, and the reason it's a deception is that there is nothing even remotely humble about a person who maintains a confidence that God can be approached for salvation on the basis of works or self-righteousness or that a person can achieve spiritual maturity uh, by these means, by the means of, of a, a, a man-determined, a man-defined, a man-invented uh, human effort as opposed to uh, on the basis of grace and on the basis of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying that that is the height of arrogance and human uh, pride, to think that either salvation or sanctification occurs on, on the basis of these kind of, of self-righteous means that man has invented for himself uh, as uh, despite how uh, spiritual they can sometimes appear uh, outwardly. And then finally in verse 23, Paul lands the absolute knockout blow to uh, all of this when he says, it is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying all of this asceticism, whatever you want to do, you want to whip yourself, you want to sleep on hard beds, you want to lie out in the middle of a European uh, winter with no heat in your room naked, you want to lie on the floor, you want to not speak for weeks or not speak for years, all of these kind of, uh, of things. Paul is saying it won't make a single dent, uh, the smallest dent, in changing our flesh, in changing our sin nature inherited from Adam and Eve. It won't set a single person free from the strong pull of that fallen nature towards sin and toward darkness and toward selfishness. All of these kind of things are absolutely powerless against the flesh for the simple reason that the flesh will not participate in any way with its death. It will not uh, join us in, in that effort. It would be like trying to crucify yourself. It's impossible to accomplish on your own because ultimately you run out of hands to drive that final nail through your final hand. And only God can accomplish such a thing in our lives. Only God can conquer the flesh by way of a spiritual birth and the power and the person of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives then after we become saved. The only way again for us to get cleaned up on the inside is for someone greater than our flesh, greater than our uh, Adam nature, greater than our carnality to come into our lives 
And that's what Christianity has done in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is going to get into all of this as we proceed into uh, chapter 3. Uh, the, all of this not only makes its own point from verses 20 to 23 in chapter 2, but it also serves in, as an introduction then to, uh, uh, to how a, a victory and a change from the inside out is accomplished within our lives, but we'll have to save that, uh, the solution side of things for next time. To me, Paul's mention of the flesh and its uh, addiction to indulgence is an interesting one uh, in the light of so much of what's happening in our nation around us, at least it is to me. And if you're like me, uh, perhaps you have watched all of the scenes of rioters uh, going on night in and night out in the, some of the major cities within our nation. I'm not talking about peaceful demonstrations. That's a, a right that we have, and that's a voice that we, uh, we want to enjoy, and we want everyone to enjoy within this nation. It's a communication and and I'm not into censorship uh, that way. But I'm talking about the, the rioters on the news, all of the looting, all of the burning, all of the destroying of other people's property, the destroying of their livelihood. I mean, the assaulting of law enforcement, what an affront, and doing it with absolute uh, impunity. And uh, maybe like me, you found yourself uh, infuriated with at their actions and the sense of entitlement in a human being that feels that they can burn down another man or woman's property or steal their property or treat uh, government or law enforcement uh, in, uh, in this way. And, uh, but what infuriates me the most is that they're being allowed to do it. And I sit there and I wonder to myself, uh, why do the leaders of these cities not use the law enforcement to bring it to a quick end and a decisive end? And we know that they could uh, readily take care of it. After all, uh, that is the most basic, the most fundamental reason for government altogether is to protect the, the physical safety and welfare uh, of its citizens. This is a failure on the part of government at its, at its absolute uh, foundation. And it seems so irrational to me as I w have watched it day in and day out and I can't understand why uh, they would let it go on. And I wonder to myself, what in the world are they thinking? Uh, how do they think this ends well? How are they processing all of this? And I wonder to myself if the accommodation of this kind of behavior isn't an indication that at least in uh, these areas of the country or these cities within our country that our nation has moved further along in abandoning our biblical foundation, not only concerning sin, not only concerning uh, the definitions of, of right and wrong, uh, but even in its worldview and its understanding uh, concerning man, concerning human beings. And of course, by and large, the secular world around us does not believe at all 
And what the Apostle Paul is saying in verses 20 to 23 here, they don't believe in what, uh, what Paul uh, speaks of here is the flesh. Uh, they don't believe in original sin. They don't believe in the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden uh, of Eden, that people are born with a sin nature, that we are born with a bent toward sin, a bent toward uh, wrongdoing, but rather they believe that people are innately good, that they are born basically uh, good, good in heart, and that those who are not uh, that you can simply good them into uh, a change of mind or a change uh, of their behavior. And it's kind of like uh, pandering to terrorists and uh, that if you're just nice to them uh, long enough, if you just put up with them long enough, then they'll, uh, all of them will see the folly of their ways and come to embrace uh, our values and uh, come to learn to respect uh, human life. And it's the idea that bad behavior uh, is not something that is a part of our nature, uh, but that bad behavior is always a byproduct of one's environment as opposed to uh, heredity. And that if you can just change man's environment, uh, it will change his heart. But as the Apostle Paul really so magnificently uh, details in Romans uh, chapter 5, the Bible teaches uh, supremely that uh, we are not sinners because we sin. The problem is worse than that. It's deeper than that. But that we sin because we are sinners. And that Adam's sin resulted in the fact that each of us as his descendants are born to the world with a sin nature. That we are born with a nature that is already conversant uh, with sin. And that's why you never have to teach uh, a toddler or teach a child how to sin. You never have to take them through the steps the way that you have to teach them virtue. Uh, they already know how uh, to do it. It's something that comes absolutely natural to them and to us. And each of us, as the Bible teaches, are sinners uh, by nature and uh, by choice and by practice. I've always appreciated um, how uh, Bob Dylan uh, puts this in the opening lyric of one of his songs on his Christian album, and it's the song Saved. And um, I will oftentimes listen to that song on my way to church on Sunday morning or Sunday night. It's a, it's a great uh, uh, spiritual hootenanny song. So, uh, but uh, the opening line of it speaks to exactly what Paul is, is saying here. And, and the opening section says, I was blinded by the devil... Uh, born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. And uh, what a description. I mean, theologically very, very uh, deep for as young a Christian as he was in, in writing those albums. But that line, born already ruined. And that's exactly what the Bible 
uh, teaches. The Bible teaches that there are a lot of bad people in the world and that there is a, a bad person living inside of every single one of us. And each of us personally and individually is the single greatest threat uh, to our own safety and our own well-being uh, due to this sin nature, due to uh, our flesh. And that the victory that we need so desperately is a victory over our sin nature. And even the ascetic, the most motivated person in the world is incapable of producing that in and of himself. And if you are within the sound of my voice this morning and you are not yet a Christian, if you are tired of the culture making uh, excuses for your sin, uh, tired of their attempt to uh, make sin disappear, uh, to solve it by simply uh, redefining it or by renaming it with uh, less offensive terms than the language of the Bible. If you're tired of dancing to the tune of your flesh and your uh, sin nature and jumping and snapping to attention every time uh, your sin nature wants to demand that you uh, satisfy uh, all of it and you want to be delivered from the darkness of your own heart and your own mind. It begins with being born again by the Holy Spirit, trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, repenting and turning to Him, putting your faith in Him, the Holy Spirit coming into your life, being born again, and the moment that happens, you become a new creation. The Bible teaches that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. And this is something only Jesus Christ can do. This is the, something only that the Holy Spirit can accomplish within our minds. Christianity is not about making good people uh, better. It is about making dead people alive. It's about making spiritually dead people who are dominated by sin and, and an Adam nature now being made alive to God. And then, having become born again, which I hope you'll do this morning, then as we move into chapter 3, he gives us uh, not the wisdom of ascetics or the wisdom of this world for how to live an entirely different quality of life, an abundant life, uh, uh, but he gives us God's instruction. He gives us something that will actually work. And if you'd like to give your life to Christ today, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front by the screens out uh, in the courtyard. Call the church office if you're watching from home and, and you want to talk with someone. We want everyone to come to know the Lord. Let's stand together now and uh, we'll close our service in prayer and a closing song. Father, we thank you this morning for the miracle of a spiritual birth. And so much of these kind of things, uh, if not to the degree of asceticism, 
uh, all of the self-works, all of the self-help uh, books that fill uh, the bestsellers list uh, at any given week in our country, year in and year out. The attempt to reform the flesh, the attempt, the attempt to educate it, the attempt to somehow manage it and control it, and all of it going on as if uh, your Bible didn't exist and as if you weren't willing to, in an instant, make a miracle of every person's life uh, in this world. And we thank you as Christians this morning uh, that you have made us a new creation we love the new creation that we have become and that you're continuing to uh, unfold within our lives and we praise you for that today. And we praise you and we thank you, Father, in the name of the one who made it possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Eternity 